Bonjour, iced coffee listeners. Jean-Baptiste Charcot was, like several other characters featuring in this era of Antarctic history, a medical student with more interest in exploration than in medicine. Unlike William Spears Bruce and Roald Amundsen, though, Charcot completed his studies, though every spare moment he spent at sea on his sailing vessels, the 26-foot Coulis, and later, the larger Pourquoi Pas, the Why Not, named after a cardboard box boat he made as a child, launching himself onto a local lake with results predictable to anyone less optimistic than a five-year-old. It was a fortune of 400,000 gold francs and a painting by Jean-Honor Fragonard, La Pacha, inherited in 1893 from his father, Professor Jean-Martin Charcot, the founder of modern neurology and an important influence on the thinking of Sigmund Freud and many other prestigious head drinkers of the age, which allowed Charcot the Younger the freedom to chuck his practice and follow his first love, sailing, to its end point, decrying his medical career as making him nothing more than my father's son. Charcot's mind continually strayed to the challenges posed by the maritime life. In 1896, Jean-Baptiste married Jeanne Hugo, granddaughter of Victor Hugo, the romantic poet and novelist. But his mind was more on the sea than on domestic life. Charcot had in mind an expedition to Greenland and commissioned shipwright Galfier to build him a sturdy, 46-metre-long, three-mast schooner. Galfier, using only the best oak, constructed the Francais so strong it exceeded threefold the standards of the Bureau Veritas, the French equivalent of Lloyd's. Charcot sought the advice of Adrien de Gerlache for insights arising from his time aboard the Belgica. The Belgian suggested reinforcing to the bow and the waterline and the installation of a retractable screw, which all added to the iceworthiness of the now 245-ton vessel, but also burnt through Charcot's inheritance. Building and fitting out the oceanography labs planned for the ship required Charcot sell the Fragonard painting. The sale of La Pacha also funded the purchase and installation of a second-hand 125-horsepower engine. While the Francais constituted an excellent hull, Charcot did his money on the auxiliary steam unit. It was thoroughly pants. In 1903, alarm about the lack of news regarding the Swedish expedition under Nordenskjold electrified the exploration community in Europe. Ernest Shackleton, newly married and working as secretary to the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, set about collecting a cache of supplies to be carried south with Lieutenant Irizar on the Argentine corvette Uruguay and depoted at Paulette Island to aid any future maroon sailors in the region. Jean-Baptiste Charcot, inspired by the possible plight of the Swedes, changed his plans. Greenland could wait. The Francais was heading south. Whether the voyage constituted a relief or a rescue, the Antarctic held enough opportunities for exploration to sate Charcot's desire for adventure. Asked to join the redesignated emergency expedition, on which he would serve as expedition photographer, Jean-Baptiste's friend, the industrialist, Paul Planeau, famously replied, Where you like, when you like, for as long as you like. Announcing his Antarctic plans, Charcot declared that the Poles have... No Frenchmen, no Germans, no English, no Danes. There are only people of the Pole. 
real men. So I guess the lack of divisions didn't extend to the gender binary of the day. Jaco received intellectual support from the Museum of Natural History, the Académie des Sciences, and the Société de Géographie, but no funds. The government, focused on imperial interests in Africa, showed no interest in following up the claims arising from de Montdevere's work six decades earlier. Some pundits figure Charcot would have fared better by appealing to nationalism, but his campaign for funds, based on the scientific opportunities the expedition offered, still yielded around 450,000 francs, including 150,000 from the newspaper Le Matin. While the government didn't contribute to the coffers, Prime Minister Emile Loubet gave the voyage his seal of approval, as though that means anything without some cash to go with it. Charcot planned to sail the west coast of the Antarctic Peninsula to Adelaide Island and Alexander Island, surveying and conducting botanical, zoological and hydrographic sampling, and taking magnetic and meteorological measurements, and addressing whether the peninsula comprised islands or a continental land, while searching for Nordenskjold and his crew. Charcot held no ambition to dash to the South Pole, writing that he thought it better to examine a narrow corner than transit listlessly up and down the seas, exhausting our efforts in haphazard researches which might prove more satisfactory to our vanity, but would assuredly have been far less useful to science. Charcot assembled a crew of 21, including Planeau and de Gerlache, six officers, volunteers on no pay, in it for the adventure and all the ice they could eat including Lieutenant Mather as astronomer and hydrographer. The Francais tried to depart Le Havre on the 15th of August, 1903. A hawser snapped while under tension, killing one of the sailors, Maignan, as the ship left the quay. The departure stalled. The Francais tried to depart Le Havre again on the 27th of August, and with no one dying, sailed for Madeira, and from there to Pernambuco, Brazil. While there, de Gerlach pulled out of the expedition, citing his recent engagement as drawing too heavily on his emotions to countenance further Antarctic voyaging. De Gerlach's departure unsettled Charcot, who felt uncertain about his own mettle as a leader. On reaching Buenos Aires on the 16th of November, the French expedition learnt the crew of the Antarctic, ship version, were safe, and enthusiastically greeted the Swedes who reached the port in December aboard the Uruguay. Charcot hosted Nordenskjold aboard the Francais, and the Swedish leader, impressed by the French expedition, donated five Greenland Huskies to aid their efforts. While there, the expedition biologist, Turquay, and geologist and glaciologist, Gordon, joined the ship and Buenos Aires also supplied a superlative cook named Rosso. The Francais left port on the 23rd of December, calling in at Ushaya on the 24th of January, and Orange Harbour in Tierra del Fuego on the 27th, reaching the South Shetlands on the 1st of February. Beyond the Shetlands, they encountered their first icebergs and reached the Palma Archipelago. On the 5th of February, the ship's auxiliary engine burst some pipes, preventing its maintaining pressure. This was just the first of many problems Charcot experienced with the engine. Large numbers of local icebergs saw Charcot opt to take shelter in Biscoe Bay, 
the ship limping along with its propeller turning in fits and starts, as the engine vacillated between machine and ballast. Fine weather allowed a transit to the better shelter offered by Flanders Bay, where the engineers and mechanics began 11 days of boiler repairs. On the 19th of February, the Francais reached Vinca Island, naming an inlet Port Lockroy, after Edward Lockroy, the French Minister of Marine, one of Charcot's strongest supporters in a government largely indifferent to his efforts. The Francais tried to push further south, but, blocked by pack ice and plagued by boiler trouble, only reached as far as 65 degrees 5 minutes south at 64 degrees west. A bad storm pushed them north to Bisco Bay once more, but Charcot chose a shallow inlet to the north side of an island named Vandel by the Belgians, but later recognised as Booth Island, reverting to the name given by Dullman in his earlier visit, as their winter quarters. The kilometre-high mountain dominating the small island carried the Belgian name forward. Vandel Peak is extremely steep and remained unclimbed until 2010, when a French team summited. The inlet, half a degree further south than Nordenskjold's winter quarters at Snow Hill Island, was later named Port Charcot after Jean-Baptiste's death. The crew drew a hawser across the inlet mouth to keep the ice out and built instrument huts and a storage shed ashore, though, as with the discovery, everyone stayed to their quarters in the far cosier ship. Turquay and Gordon got the zoological, botanical and geological collecting underway, and Planeau dedicated what time he didn't spend in photography to assisting the attempts to right the boiler problems. The expedition wintered above the circle, but not far above the circle, and the brief glimpse of the sun each day around the solstice, while still more cheering than complete darkness, left a lot to be desired in the seasonal affective disorder and toastiness stakes. Charcot, learning from de Gerlache's equipment and entertainment shortfalls aboard the Belgica, provided an extensive library, a well-stocked larder, and the range of wines and spirits you would expect in a French-run expedition. Privacy doors were built across bunk apertures to give some small but treasured personal space. Rousseau received much praise for his efforts at making the most of the food, baking bread every other day and croissants on Sundays. Lectures and concerts provided distractions through the week, and the gramophone stood in on any evening without an organised event, but even so, morale slumped with the shortening days. On May 30th, 1904, determined to boost flagging moods, Charcot employed the most whimsical action in Antarctica since George Vancouver climbed out on the bowsprit of the Resolution to yell, Ne plus ultra. Charcot took his crew out for a picnic. Walking on young sea ice to Hovgard Island, named by de Gerlache after a Danish naval officer, and not after Hovgard Island off the coast of Greenland, which was named after a Danish naval officer, everyone got their feet wet. On arriving at the picnic site, axes were needed to cut up the food, but it got people out and away from the ship. The brief, cold excursion did give morale a bit of a boost. As the winter pressed in, though, the ship's heating system proved unable to keep ahead of the encroaching cold. The crew wore gloves and scarves at all times, and no one could touch metal instruments or fittings with their bare skin. The sea around the ship froze. Winter storms set in. A shore team of four went missing in foggy conditions, 
returning in the care of a search party, badly frostbitten. The astronomer, Lieutenant Mather, fell ill with myocarditis, a viral inflammation of the heart muscles. Charcot, alert to the condition based on de Gerlache's experiences, applied the only effective treatment, bed rest, and Mather resumed light duties in September. With the days lengthening, the whaleboat went out for surveying. On the 24th of November, Charcot, Plenot, Gordon and two sailors took the whaleboat and food sufficient for 20 days to Peterman Island and the Graham Land coast. The sea ice that couldn't fully support their weight in May now prevented the passage of the boat and the team employed axes in an attempt to make the leads needed to make headway. When they reached surfaces too thick to yield to axe blows, the boat was pushed up onto the ice and pushed forward as a sledge. The weight of the party depressed the ice without breaking it, and seawater flooded the resulting dimple. They found themselves knee-deep in sub-zero superbrine, pushing their boat for 10 to 18 hours each day, a new kind of misery in the ice coffee annals. Adding to their problems, the goggles they employed didn't provide adequate protection against UV light, and several of the party experienced snow blindness. Five days they carried this nonsense forward, which is frickin' hardcore. After which they spent a week surveying the Graham Land coast between Booth and Biscoe Islands, and made the first ascent of the 884-metre Mount Tuxen. In mid-December, southerly winds blew most of the sea ice around the island away. Charcot employed explosives to break up what ice remained around the Francais, and the crew used saws, picks and crowbars to encourage the remnants to leave the inlet. The ship's pig. Did I mention that the ship carried a pet pig? Sure I did. Anyway, Toby the pig ate some fish left lying around in a bucket, as a pig will do, but Toby didn't realise the fish had hooks in them. Charcot performed surgery to try to retrieve the hook-laden fish to prevent a slow, painful death as the hooks tore the animal's alimentary canal to shreds, but Toby died under the knife. The crew buried him ashore, where I would not. There is no cure for death, but there is an excellent cure for bacon. On Christmas Day 1904, the crew celebrated the ice-free path ahead of them with a gramophone concert among the penguins, exchanging gifts from home and toasting their departure from winter quarters. On the 26th, they raised anchor, skirted Biscoe Island through the pack ice, and shot the channel between Adelaide Island and the Bay coast, and on the 13th of January 1905, they sighted Alexander Island at 70 degrees south. On the 15th of January, the Francais went aground on a submerged rock about a mile offshore. With the ship travelling at six knots when the grounding occurred, this put a sizeable hole in the ship's bow, and the engine still giving trouble, couldn't run the ship's pumps to remove the water now flooding in. The hand pumps, all located astern, required the watertight bulkheads between the below-decks compartments, designed to prevent a hull breach in one area threatening the whole ship, be breached themselves in order that the rising water could reach the stern where it could be pumped out. The stoker and engineer, Libois, allowed the crew to lower him into the freezing cold water in the forward hold to try to stem the leak, but he couldn't achieve much. The Francais sailed north, the hand pumps operating for 45 minutes in every hour, 
23 hours a day. Crew members recount coming to the end of their watch and finding their chilled hands unable to let go of the pump handles. On the 29th of January, the Francais put in at Port Lockroy and 10 days of repairs followed. On the 15th of February, they sailed past Smith Island and into the South Shetlands once more, and from there steered for Tierra del Fuego. The Francais put in at Puerto Madryn, Argentina, where Charco learnt that his wife was seeking a divorce on grounds of desertion, and his sister was assembling a rescue party because unfounded rumours circulating in France suggested the ship founded in the south. On reaching Buenos Aires, the Francais went into dry dock to make good the short-term repairs made at Port Lockroy, revealing seven and a half metres of false keel torn away by the grounding at their furthest south. The false keel doing its job protecting the actual keel. Well done that keel. The Argentine government made a generous offer to buy the Francais, hoping to employ the vessel in supplying Orcada's station in the Ormond House in the South Orkneys. Charcot, likely not making much comment about the second-hand auxiliary steam engine, accepted the offer, packing his crew aboard the France-bound liner, Algerie. The first French expedition since de Montdevere returned home intact but for a pig, having charted 1,000 kilometres of coastline and carrying 75 packing cases of specimens. All up, the expedition reports ran to 18 volumes. Having sighted no undiscovered land, Charcot made no claims, and given government reticence about de Montdevere's claims and Charcot's expedition, even France likely would not have given any claims much credence. Questions regarding the nature of the peninsula remained unanswered, but that would remain the case for some time yet, and in no way reflects poorly on the French efforts. The voyage of the Francais didn't set the exploration world on fire, and the scientific output of the expedition, while solid, wasn't earth-shattering in its volume or its revelations. What Charcot did was put his considerable money where his mouth was, and returned with everyone alive, and this is not the last we'll hear of the man who headed south, in part, to step clear of his father's considerable shadow. In a postscript that speaks to the troublesome nature of territorial claims in Antarctica, particularly around the peninsula, one of the islands surveyed by the French, which they named Isles Nansen, now goes by three names. In 1960, UK cartographers figured it lay too close to Nansen Island, to retain the name Il Nansen without causing confusion, and now list it as Lavoisier Island, after the French chemist who kicked off the study of metabolism. The Chileans refer to it as Isla Serrano, and the Argentinians call it Isla Mitra. The names on charts approach to giving territorial claims credibility contested hotly at very low temperatures. Now, an interview with Professor Craig Franklin, Deputy Head of the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Queensland, whose work in Antarctica spans research, tourism and education projects. I provide links at the blog to his web presence, reviews of the Antarctic cruising book he wrote with Peter Carey, and the interview with Richard Feidler that first introduced me to Professor Franklin's impressive breadth of research interests, within which notothenoid physiology is just one facet. Did I mention there's a blog? I don't think I have, though several listeners have found it regardless, 
because iced coffee subscribers are well smart. I use it to make some notes about each episode, provide links to sites relevant to particular topics, and I'm in the process of adding maps and diagrams that illustrate concepts and processes difficult to put into words effectively. The bibliography will come. One day. Go to icecoffeepodcast.wordpress.com Welcome to Ice Coffee, Professor Franklin. Could you please describe the work you did with Professor Bill Davison at Scott Base? What's fascinating about Antarctica is other effects of temperature. And in the aquatic environment, it represents some of the most stable of this planet. With it sitting around about 1.9 degrees Celsius. And what's fascinating about that is that life has evolved at those very low and very stable temperatures for millions of years. And the fish that live in those waters actually have the same body temperature as that water. So they have a body temperature of close to minus 1.9 degrees Celsius, and it's stable. In the face of climate change and global warming, some of the questions we're interested in uh, is are about how life may be influenced by increases in temperature. And given the evolutionary history of the fishes in Antarctica, we went about asking questions, are they going to be susceptible to climate change or, in fact, resilient to climate change? So our, our work and our research involved exposing Antarctic fish to elevated temperatures up to a meagre four degrees Celsius and seeing whether that had an effect on them. And what was interesting is that if you acutely changed, so rapidly changed the temperature, those fish um, were very susceptible to elevated temperatures. But over time, over the space of about four or five weeks, they were able to readjust their physiology as if there was no effect of those elevated temperatures. So here's a case where it's an animal that we first thought would be susceptible to temperature because of uh, living in those very low and stable conditions, but has the physiology to actually be quite resilient to climate change. Is that evidence of an evolutionary history of ancestral populations living in warmer waters? Yeah, so I think that's that's what we believe, is that if we look at the, the base stock uh, of the group of fish that we studied down there, which are the notothenioids, then it appears that they have a you know an evolutionary history that uh, they arose in a temperate environment, so were exposed to um, you know higher temperatures and fluctuating temperatures. What other projects have taken you back to the ice? So, so really, our focus has been looking recently at the, the possible impacts of climate change, but our other research has included just looking at how fish in Antarctica are able to function at very low temperatures. So what is their underlying physiology that allows them to uh, to function at low temperatures, which tend to slow things down? 
uh, because of the depressive effects of low temperature, yet they maintain their physiology and their performance just like a fish in, uh, in temperate waters or indeed in tropical waters. Does anyone have an idea when notithinoids became the dominant fish in Antarctic waters? I'm not an expert in that area, but we know that for at least the last five billion years, um, they have occurred in Antarctic waters. And as you say, they are, you know, the, the dominant group of fish in Antarctica, something like 40% are notithinoids. You've also worked as an Antarctic tour guide. How did the perspectives you gained from those trips contrast with those you gained in your research? It, it doesn't so much contrast, but enhances how you view Antarctica and how you educate people about Antarctica. And the, the, the two work together uh, very, very nicely. So I can draw on my research experience and my understanding of the Antarctic ecosystem, and then I'm able to convey that information to uh, a general audience, and I think that's really important. Uh, we know that there are a large number of threats to Antarctic conservation, whether it be long-line fishing or climate change or increases in UVB radiation as a consequence of the ozone hole, and being able to talk through the issues and to allow people to be educated on these matters, I think, is critically important. Do you have research questions slated for further Antarctic projects? I think there, there are always many questions that, that are driven by uh, by the research that you've conducted. And I suppose for me, I'm, I'd be very interested in looking at other fish species in Antarctica and whether they show that resilience to elevated temperatures. But also, I think it's important that... Um, our experiments are run only over, you know, six to eight weeks that we need to look at long, long-term effects of elevated temperatures. While they may be able to, to readjust their physiology over a six-week period, it may have detrimental effects um, in the long term in, in terms of energy ba- balance and growth. Were you working with Benax? Yes, no, we, we, our, fish, our study fish species was uh, uh, Pagathenia uh, borkrovinki, or, or we call them borks. Um, we chose that species because it's a pelagic species, and one of the, the traits that we're interested in was swimming performance. And so we could put them into a flume, and like a, a, tread, a swimming treadmill, and swim them. Uh, to exhaustion, and so they're an ideal species, whereas Banax, they're a benthic species, they're a certain weight predator, so they're, they're just a bit more difficult to get measures of performance. Which other species are you interested in? I'm particularly interested in the zoarchids and the leperids, so things like eel pouts. Um, they live in, in deep water, and I'm... <laughs> Questioning whether that group in itself has um, has resilience to uh, increasing temperatures. Living in deeper water, do these species need the same antifreeze proteins in their blood as the borks and banax have? Some of the, the deep water species in Antarctica are super cooled rather than having uh, an antifreeze protein. And 
a big part of that is that, yes, they're not exposed to um, anchor ice and that increased pressure at depth also um, prevents ice formation. So, yes, they're living on the edge. They are super cooled and uh, don't have any antifreezes. Eratum. In episode 28, I mentioned that the morning collected a message cache from Cape Royds, but I should have said Cape Crozier. This was a slip of the brain rather than a fact-checking error, but it still bugs me that I got it wrong. Addenda. In my first outing into someone else's RSS feed, I played guest on episode 39 of the Hangar Deck podcast and spoke about Antarctic aviation. Only introduced to the series recently, I've enjoyed working through their back catalogue as the diversity of experience in the team allows them to make the most of the knowledge and stories of the broad range of guests that they bring to the mic. I got in touch, little realising how quickly they would react to my offer to speak on my pet topic. From first contact to published episode took about a week and a half. They've done their homework on effective podcasting formats, hardware and sound processing, making for a high quality series in terms of content, pace and sound. They know their topic back to front and share their knowledge freely while taking care not to leave the uninitiated behind in a morass of jargon. Accessible, fascinating and engaging, I use and recommend the Hangar Deck podcast, a top series for anyone with any interest in aviation and airframes as they're knocking aero podcasting out of the park. Check them out on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play or go to the source at www.thehangardeck.com. I'd also like to date the episode by linking it to a Kickstarter campaign underway as I record this. Anyone who listened to the Reasonable Doubts podcast will know that Dave Fletcher did sterling work highlighting the range of deities who never made the cut against the cutthroat selective pressures at play in the realm of competitive religion in his polyatheism segments. Dave Fletcher is seeking to carry that work forward in paper and ink with his project Myth Adventures. I want that book and I will bug everyone I know, by every means available to me, to try and help get it funded. So while this announcement might benefit my podcasting efforts in the Curate's Egg series, the next episode of that can't go out until after the Kickstarter campaign is over, and only seven people listen to it anyway. So here we are. Kickstarter. Dave Fletcher. Myth Adventures. Finally, the second Ice Coffee competition... Long-term listeners will recognise that I'm a fan of the pun. In putting together the material for this episode, I came up with what I think is the best pun I ever done. The first listener to correctly identify what I think is that best pun of my life and gives their answer as a response to the episode 29 blog post will receive a copy of Alan Gurney's excellent Below the Convergence. You don't have to like or praise the pun, just correctly identify the one that made my dad laugh out loud and my wife groan and, in her words, make a face like she was sucking on a kumquat. Take care and appreciate your coffee.